0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Uncensored Critic Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me again for another episode. And we've got another fantastic guest for you. And that is the great Christopher McElroy. Did I, did I get your name right? Did I say that right? You did. Yes. Yes. I should have I probably should have <laughs> checked that before I started, but hey, I took the risk. Uh so Chris is the artistic director of the, of the company, the theatre company out in America called The American Vicarious. It's a, a Brooklyn-based company committed to generating art that reflects American ideas and realities that both divides and unites its people. And Chris has been responsible for some amazing productions, including Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard and Three Sisters, The Cherry Orchard with Wendell Pierce, who some of you might know as Robert Zane from Suits, uh, The Blacks, A Clown Show, which was nominated and won for 2003 Off-Broad Broadway Theatre Awards. And he also directed the world premiere of 51st Dream State, which was the final work of poet, and I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, so please forgive me. Sehov Sondiata. 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 You go. Apologies for that. Uh, which was a multimedia project exploring the American Empire, which premiered at the Brooklyn Academy of Music's Nest Wave Festival before an international tour. Chris has also been a guest speaker at illustrious institutions across the world, such as Pace University, Stanford and the New York University. He co-founded the Classical Theatre of Harlem, CTH, between 1999 and in 2009, it produced 41 shows, raking in award after award, including a Drama Desk Award, as well as being deemed one of the eight theatres in America to watch by the prestigious Drama League of the United States. And then it's just a small sample of Chris's incredible CV and work, and it's a genuine pleasure to have you along here today. So Chris, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me. I appreciate it. No, no, thank thank you. The pleasure's all mine. Thanks for being here today. I really appreciate you uh, tuning in today. Um, so, yeah, so I have a starter question for everyone on the show, which is to begin at the beginning. Uh, so in your case, where did the love of directing and the love of the
1: art start for you? Where did it come from? Uh, it was actually quite by accident. Mm-hmm. I was a few sh- credit shy of graduating from college, and I took a theater class because it scared me. <laughs> and I learned a way to express myself that I had never experienced before, and so I uh, kind of dove into the deep end of the pool. Uh, mm. And I made uh, the a commitment to pursuing a career in the arts. So Very quite nice. by accident, I didn't do I didn't do theater or the arts uh, while I was growing up.
0: Nice. If, if I
1: me ask, what part of it was uh, was
0: scary for you? What made you want to challenge yourself?
1: Well, my choice was between a political science class and an acting class. Mm-hmm. and i think it was the the fear of getting up in in front of folks um so which is why i don't do that now because i can i can hide behind the scenes as a director <laughs> so hide behind the scenes
0: is great so uh, I've, i was thinking about um today and what what we want to talk about etc and i've always been fascinated by the world of the director because you are the commander in chief of a, of a production. And of course you're bringing your work over here to the UK um, in, a, in a couple of months time with at the Stone Nest theater on Shaftesbury Avenue. So w- where does it start? So when, when you, obviously you, you pick a, a subject or a play that you'd like to do, and then what's the first steps towards getting a production up and running?
1: Well, I think the first, for me, I think it's different for, for, every director and every Mm -hmm. artist, um, you know, but the first question is why, you Mm -hmm. know, why do you want to tell this story? Why do you want to pull this particular thread? Um, and what is it that you're trying to, to, to communicate to others, um, and perhaps, you know, answer for yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. so the, the question of why is always the, for me, the, the first question and and most important question. Mm -hmm. Um, and then just understanding yourself and what it is that you're trying to to, to discover or navigate, um, you know, that kind of leads you to to various choices, whether those are works that are in the canon, or they're new works that you're seeking to collaborate and create from the ground up. Mm. So when it comes to, because um, you've, you've approached, you've made a lot of
0: original work, and of course, you've approached um, classical texts like the Cherry Orchard and, and um, Three Sisters, when it comes to a text that's so well known, um, how do you go about putting your unique stamp on it in a way? How do you how do you find something in a play which has been done so many times that you people can go that that's a real Christopher uh stamp on that show?
1: Well, I, I don't know if I have a I don't know if I have a stamp. Um, perhaps <laughs> I do. Hopefully I do. Maybe. Um, but that's for others to, to determine. Um, yeah. So not really for myself. <laughs> um you know again it's it's going back to that that question why so you know an yeah. example when i was was at the the classical theater of harlem you know we worked on a production of macbeth and i think we did it three or four times um and that play you could make the argument it can be reduced to the wrong person being in charge uh-huh. and when we did that play it felt like new york city had the wrong person in charge um uh-huh. for me and, and and my politics um you know governor uh mayor giuliani was in charge at the time and it felt like he was the wrong leader for the city in that moment and mm. so that particular production took that track of the wrong person being in charge mm. um, a play like the cherry orchard you can make the argument that it is about navigating societal change um and so whenever i have worked on Chekhov before uh, both cherry orchard and three sisters it felt like it was in a moment of change and whether that was personal change or societal change um trying to na- navigate those aspects and allowing the the work to be informed by 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 those mm. um observations
0: yeah and um so what what made you want to um approach chekhov and um and three sisters what made i mean you, you mentioned the time of change there but um was it like an immediate like reaction to to do those well plays? it's
1: chekhov and it's you know he's he's one of the the greatest writers mm. you know of of that we have um Mm -hmm. and so any opportunity to 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 work on Chekhov and you know that that material is malleable enough where you know you can justify the why in any number of 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 ways um Mm -hmm. just on a personal level um you know the first real piece of theater that I did was was Uncle Vanya um so Mm -hmm. for personal reasons you know I have a a strong connection to 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 Chekhov um Mm -hmm. And being able to work on the cherry orchard with with Wendell uh, Pierce, oh. you know, was a was a gift. You know, and I had the the joy of of directing Wendell. I think on three other occasions. Uh, most significantly, we did a production of Waiting for Godot in the Lower Ninth Ward of yeah. New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And as you may know, Wendell is is a native son of of New Orleans, and mm-hmm. so to work on that material. After Hurricane Katrina with Wendell, who is from New Orleans and who whose family suffered greatly um, was, you know, a truly meaningful experience. Um, But back to Chekhov, it's 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 Chekhov. And in that particular case, it was a, a chance to collaborate with 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 Wendell
0: yeah now what's he like to work with i mean i admire him as an actor because i saw him in um a death of a salesman which came over i think went to broadway i think it started here and i think went to broadway
1: in 2000 and, um I yeah it just closed. it just closed on broadway uh oh, no. last month yeah oh, really? and i saw it at the i came over to to see it at the young vic Yes, um and uh he's a he's a phenomenal actor uh, a very generous actor and a very generous individual um Mm -hmm. and so um you know I've had the I've had the good fortune to to collaborate with them over the over the Mm -hmm. years and hopefully we'll get you know a chance again at some point yeah I'm sure I'm
0: sure I think um I've always been fascinated by the kind of stigma of of Chekhov it's not so much a stigma but it's kind of my wording of it really but a lot of people find Chekhov to be quite slow and you know meandering and quite so kind of like a, a tough evening in the theater but a lot of people always find the humor in Chekhov as well and like when you see it I've seen Chekhov done and I found it quite funny at times um so what was your experience of it did you so finding the did you find the humor in 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 Chekhov did you or was it oh
1: absolutely life is life is absurd and Chekhov certainly understood that and it Mm. has to be laughed at um and and he's 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 a master at it and Mm. so yeah I think it's important to to approach those works as if they are comedic mm. um, and, and uh, the comedy just naturally rises to the, to the surface. Yeah. I did, I've done
0: another um, uh, podcast with a guy called Simon Furness who, about Uncle Vanya actually. Okay. And uh, we sort of talked about how, so the absurdity came from the idea that these characters are in such a bad position and you think, mm-hmm. God, could it get any worse? And it does get worse. And then the, that's funny somehow and then it's like the absurdity of that comes through in a way and like like you
1: say, yeah, there's also there's master. also comedy in the the privilege that they hold hmm. um and the fact that they are lamenting change that they feel they're going to be negatively impacted by, but that hmm. change is actually very positive for other people in the in the play and other people in the world. Um, and I think that's for me is is where the the kind of comedy comes from mm. um you know, is that that place of of privilege um mm. and folks who are lamenting the things that they don't have when to a large segment of the population they have more than enough mm. um, and so you know that that uh, that can be wicked um in a good way.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's a good lead on to um, your work. Uh, You mentioned there Waiting for Godot, which I wanted to ask you about today, the work of Beckett as well. But um, that was um, produced by your company, um, CTH. And so uh, before we talk about Beckett, uh, let's have a little talk about uh, CTH. Um, So how did you come about making that theatre company? And what, what sort of work do you guys like to do?
1: I was invited to teach at the Harlem School of the Arts. So mm-hmm. when I when I graduated university, uh, I was invited to to teach, uh, and I guess I taught there for about two years or so. Mm-hmm. And so starting classical theater of Harlem in collaboration with my my co-founder at the time, Alfred Pricer, um, was a natural outgrowth to the teaching that we were doing at the school. Mm -hmm. Um, and the school had an old taxi garage that had been converted into a theater back in the the 1970s Um, and max roach used to use it as a rehearsal studio the great jazz drummer Mm -hmm. Um, but it had fallen into disrepair in the in the 90s and so you know we inquired about using that space to start a, a professional company that could be in residence at the school and the school was very supportive of the idea they said we could use the space Uh, just don't ask them for any money um (laughs) and so uh you know myself and my co-founder we kind of funded that theater out of our own pocket uh through our day jobs at the time Mm -hmm. um you know and we we quickly uh got some traction but starting that company was was very organic uh it came out of the the teaching at the Harlem School of the Arts, and a and a sense of need from both the students in that program and other faculty members to have a, a professional outlet for for work um, that didn't exist at the time, hmm. and so we decided to you know focus on on the classics, but but doing the classics in a way that uh, you know we didn't treat them as museum pieces. Uh, we tried to treat them as living, breathing. Pieces of art that were immediate and responding to what was happening in the in the community at the time. And at the time, Harlem was was really going through a second second rena- renaissance. So a lot of gentrification, new real estate development, and so a lot of the artistic choices we made tried to to speak to the to the changes that uh, that the community was was navigating. Mm. And so to go back to Chekhov, Harlem in that moment was navigating. Great change. um mm-hmm. and those plays seem to have an aspect that 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 spoke to that,
0: yeah, and and you mentioned also I think um about waiting for God, like the response to Hurricane Katrina in a way. and uh, um I was looking at YouTube actually, and um earlier, and there's some footage of your production still still on there. you know, you created this vast set, you know, but you've got the tree, which is like a pole in the, in the middle of the stage. And yeah. uh, you've got these amazing, um, like like New Orleans neighborhood in a way. And it's like a completely different context of, of waiting and Forgotten. It. it looked amazing. It looked really, really interesting.
1: Yeah, we did that. We did that production three times. And they were three completely different productions, all, right. all centered on the idea of waiting in a post-Katrina New Orleans. Okay. The first time we did the show was in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And it was in a 15,000-gallon swimming pool. And right. then we built a house and we submerged the house in the pool. So just the rooftop was coming out of the water. Right. And Wendell and a brilliant actor named Jay Kyle Manze, uh, they were playing Didi and Gogo. And it was kind of the, the days, the days immediately after Katrina, where folks were stranded on, on their roofs, waiting right. for help. Right. Um, and we did that production, I guess, for six weeks or so in New York City. And then a year and a half later, uh, we took the production down to New Orleans mm-hmm. without the pool and we did it at an intersection in the Lower Ninth Ward, uh, just blocks away from where the levee had been breached. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also did it in the Gentilly community of New Orleans, mm-hmm. um, again, where the, the levee had been breached uh, for the London Canal. Um, and same production in the sense that it's post-Katrina, but it fast-forwards two years, um, and we're still waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that project was a collaboration with a visual artist, uh, Paul Chan, mm-hmm. and an organization in New York called Creative Time. They do public art. And that project was, uh, the play was, was probably the smallest component of what we did. So mm-hmm. we spent about a year making trips down to New Orleans to have conversations about what it means to wait in the post-Katrina New Orleans. We held, I think it was upward of 20 potluck dinners across the city where we brought folks from from the various wards to sit down and break bread uh, and find things that, uh, you know, where there was common ground uh, and what people were waiting for. Um, and then we started a, a small foundation that gave grants away to folks that were leading grassroots rebuilding efforts uh, in the, the two communities where we staged the play. And yeah. one of the things we learned as soon as we got to New Orleans was that folks weren't waiting. They knew that that help wasn't coming um, and it was on them to take right. action. So we really embraced that. And so when Wendell gets to the end of the the, the second act and he says let us not waste time in idle discourse, let us do something. Everybody who saw that play on those nights outdoors in New Orleans knew exactly what he was saying. And and it was such an amazing moment of of theater, transcended theater, uh, because theater you hope is a a conversation between an actor and an audience. Um, And in that moment, it was a direct conversation because everybody could relate to to those words that Beckett wrote and that Wendell Pierce was speaking in his hometown of of New Orleans.
0: Yeah. That sounds like one hell of an experience. That must have been quite quite a, an emotional journey, I think, for everyone involved for that whole experience. It
1: it it was. And I and you know, credit to to you know my collaborators on on that project um who really understood that you know you have to work from the ground up. You yeah. can't come in from from outside with a with an idea but you really have to to spend the time and build the relationships and have the conversations and allow your art to be informed by the 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 communities where you're presenting it
0: yeah I think it's interesting how um as you know like writers get writers block and I'm not sure if that, if there is like a director's block or like a creative block or something like that but um it's interesting how you say that you don't you didn't of fast when he didn't take any shortcuts, you wanted to create the best possible thing you could by admiring and appreciating and getting every detail you possibly could. So like if you if you do hit a stumbling block, like a creative block, um like throughout that project or any project you've done, what would you say was a good thing to do to unblock that?
1: I think it's just going back to that question, you know, where we started this dialogue is why? why am I working on this project and what is it that I'm trying to, to communicate and yeah. navigate and, and share, um, you know, and for me it has to, it has to start from the, from the ground up. Otherwise it's just activity, um, you know, and there's, there's no real value in, in the activity. Yeah. It's just a a distraction from your distractions. Um, yeah. And so it, uh, so it, again for me it, it it has to it has to be personal um and then sharing why you're creating something with your collaborators allowing them to take ownership of the idea and being present and aware enough to to just listen uh to to what's to what's taking taking place uh, it, it's theater the performing arts they' it's a collaborative art form um yeah. And so I've always viewed my role in it as a catalyst. Um, I see my phone is ringing here. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. it okay. just popped up on the screen and you went away, but I think you're still here. Yep. There you are. I can um, sorry about that. That's okay. Um, is to, you know, the catalyst of an idea um, mm-hmm. and then inviting folks to, to take ownership of that idea and allow it to to become their own mm. and and being open enough to allow the idea to, to change accordingly so yeah. never being married to it absolutely absolutely and we sort of jump from uh, another to
0: another absurdist writer in Samuel Beckett you know and um Waiting for Godot I think um you know Beckett I think was a playwright who you know I tried to read his plays like Waiting for Godot, Happy Days, um, Endgame and at first reading the play, you know, I'm thinking, I have no idea what this is all about at all. And then funny enough, I saw Juliette Stevenson do uh, Happy Days at the Young Vic, actually, a few years ago. And I saw it in motion and it was like, oh, OK, that's 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 what Beckett's all about. You know, I think Beckett really revels in performance and in and actually in the moment and with that physical activity. Um, how, how would you sum up the work of of Samuel Beckett, having having worked on it extensively?
1: You know, for me, it's it's always about the distillation to the simplest form, mm. um, and a lot is written about Godot and who is Godot and what does it mean, and those things can be crippling. Um, so mm. you can't, as Jake Kyle used to say, who who was in that production, I I can't play existential. Um, <laughs> you know, I need a I need a clear acting objective, um, and for me, that play is was just always two people waiting for a third Hmm. and within that you're distracting yourself which is such a large part of the human experience Hmm. is the way we distract ourselves from the reality around us whether those realities are are political or they're you know larger than life I mean we're all gonna (laughs) meet the the same inevitable end and Mm -hmm. so we distract ourselves as we go and for me that that play is about distraction um it doesn't need to be anything more than that yeah um and i I think that the 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 same can be true for most of beckett's writings for me it his language is so simple his Mm. sentence structure so simple Mm. um but yet we graft on uh so much to, to his to his language um and so yeah two guys waiting for a third <laughs> so, and not getting bored while they wait
0: exactly it's almost like um Ian McKellen talked about it as well because he did a fantastic um version of it uh, with Patrick Stewart on Broadway as well yeah about how his, his taking of the play was that it's all about waiting you know and how we fit what we do as humans to fill the time in and finding that that meaning um to our everyday activities or to the reason why we're here and you know absolutely begs all, begs all those questions about how like why are we here why do, why do we do what we do what why is this the way that things are in a way and I always found it so fascinating so um so when, when you see Beckett come alive you know in the rehearsal room I mean I, mean, I don't know about you but I, I just get a bit of a chill and it's just like oh this he's asking all these big questions in of these beautiful ways um yeah well what's it like seeing a beckett play to sort of go from the page to the an actual performance and then you get to opening night and then you see the the results of everything you've put together
1: yeah the first time we worked on the play again we did it in a fifteen thousand gallon swimming pool and yeah, so yeah. when it felt like things were going wrong somebody would just jump in the pool <laughs> uh you know, uh, when we were in New Orleans, we rehearsed in uh, a school uh, that had been abandoned, destroyed. Um, it was a, mm. a safe haven during the storm for about 300 residents who who waited up on the roof for, for a handful of days. There was a gentleman who was living in one of the classrooms upstairs. Um, and we were rehearsing one day at the top of the second act. And it starts with a song. Wendell came out uh, to sing that song and we were going to you know, embracing the New Orleans culture, kind of lean into the the second line idea. And so Wendell had an umbrella and he wound up doing a second line, three blocks towards the the performance space. But when we were in rehearsal that day, uh, this gentleman stopped us. Our rehearsals were open to the public to, to come and see. And he stopped us um, and he ran upstairs to the classroom where he was living. Mm-hmm. And he came down and he had four crushed soda cans that he then screwed to the bottom of his sneakers and he asked Wendell to sing the song again. And he started tap dancing. And this is how this gentleman was, was making a living, uh, tap dancing with crushed soda cans in the the French Quarter. Um, And that, uh, that energy made it into the performance. Um, And so watching Beckett come alive, in that fashion with somebody who before, uh, that rehearsal had Mm. no relationship to Beckett. Um, but what he saw in Wendell rehearsing was, Oh, this is me. Mm. This is, this is my life. This is how I spend my time, um, by dancing to, to, to songs like this, to, Mm. to get some, some money in my pocket. Um, and so, um, you know, being present in that that moment and allowing Beckett to be informed by the place it's being staged is, and and his work again because it's so simple. The language is so simple; it's it's accessible um, to to both theater professionals and and non. Mm. So
0: amazing! I I always find um there's a copy of the play over here. It's by um I think it's published by Faber and Faber is a publishing company over here. Um, not sure if you get them in the states, but um, on the back there's a quote from Beckett, who someone said I, I think it was a critic who said to him on one of the first few performances, came up to him and said, "Oh, so when you say Godo, you mean God? So these characters are waiting for God?" And he said, "If the characters were waiting for God, I would have written God." Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's funny when said, we were yeah.
1: when we were in New Orleans, we did a lot of community outreach and one of the things that we we did was we went into churches mm-hmm. and there was a pastor who did his sunday sermon and it was called waiting for god to do and so he took he took godot when he riffed on it a little bit and it was a uh, it was a very impassioned sermon so waiting for god to do
0: waiting so. for god what what is God going to do, in his opinion? Do you think?
1: You know, I don't recall the the details of that. Um. <laughs> so, but I remember being uh being moved by the energy in the room at the time.
0: Yeah, that's
1: always good. That's
0: always good. Yeah. You know, you should have put them. I know this is going very much against the uh, play itself. You used to put that tap dancer in the show. I think that would have been a lovely aesthetic
1: do you not think yes yeah you'd have some challenges because the you know the back of the state can be difficult Um, (laughs) so they
0: would um they'd probably have a few few words to say over the phone but um cool so uh, let's talk about um so there's two more things uh which we can go into detail about today um one is the american vicarious which you Mm -hmm. are artistic director um as i said in the intro it's like your channel you bring Things to the stage that both unites and divides the country. So, um, what is the American Vicarious, and how did that come about? Similar to your work with CTH.
1: Uh, so, the I, I view the American Vicarious as kind of the the beginning of my third decade of, of doing this. So, mm. my my first decade, um, you know, involved uh, starting the Classical Theatre of and working very much on a kind of traditional. A season-based model where we were doing four to six projects a year a subscription-based audience mm-hmm. um, and when I did Godot in New Orleans um, you know I started to think about time differently and using time as a resource um, you know working on a season-based model nothing really gets a full breath mm-hmm. um, because the minute you create something you're already thinking about tearing it down and, and creating the next mm-hmm. um and so the second decade of my career i tried to use time as a resource yeah. um and i i did a number of projects i worked with the ralph ellison estate to create uh the first ever stage adaptation of ralph ellison's invisible man Mm -hmm. And that was a project that was created over the course of two years by traveling the country and talking to Ellison scholars and librarians and uh, anybody who had been moved by the book um, and creating that piece. Um, I spent uh, two years down in the Piedmont region of America with a, a wonderful jazz pianist and composer named Gerald Clayton uh talking to elder blues musicians about the the tradition of of blues, specifically the Piedmont blues, um and how the music is a kind of a a solve for for racism and yeah. uh discrimination in America. Um but yet the music uh is joyful and so you know um that piece, Piedmont Blue, is a search for salvation, um, and so again developed over the course of, of two years, um, and then in 2016, uh, when when Trump became president, um, you know the world seemed to be moving much faster, um, democracy seemed to to be at risk, um, and I wanted to basically take the first decade of my career and the second decade of my career um and create a company where i could respond to to the world with a bit more alacrity um than i than i could at the time Mm -hmm. Um, and so starting a company that you know explores the things that unite and divide us um and doing so on a a, an accelerated timeline um Mm -hmm. but not the accelerated timeline of a of a season-based company Mm. Um, and so what we do at the American Vicarious is we work across disciplines. Um, we have done, uh, we've done kind of concert installation pieces. Uh, we have a, a video installation piece that is heading to uh, to New Zealand uh, later this month that explores uh, political rhetoric and the dangers of political rhetoric. It's oh. a distillation of a uh a lecture uh, that was given in 1958 by isaiah berlin called two concepts of liberty negative liberty and positive liberty um we have uh, we have done a, a documentary film uh called far from the nile uh, that just won the best uh non-fiction uh, feature film at the cairo international film festival that's currently out on the the, the film festival circuit now That documentary follows uh, uh, 11 musicians from eight different countries that border the Nile River. They're banded together to try and collaborate to heighten the awareness of the water conflict along the river. Uh, And they come to the U.S. for a 100-day tour of the U.S. And so we follow them across America and we see America through their eyes. And we also learn the, the challenges of collaboration. Uh, you know, there's five different languages spoken uh, within that group and they come from different cultural backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, but yet they're able to overcome their differences once they're defined uh, to to collaborate and create music and, and art. Yeah. Um, and so you know that's that's been the the thrust of our work just again, trying to just examine the things that unite and and ultimately divide us sadly
0: yeah. It's a, it sounds like a very innovative um company and work um work catalogue that you've got together you've really you're, you're really breaking the mold about things that like you must be quite proud of of the work you've done and the work you're going to do in the future right
1: yeah you know the the pandemic was 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 very liberating uh for us uh okay. because it forced us to think in in uh in new ways um you know the the traditional theatre model is uh it's broken, uh, at least here in America, in my opinion. Um, you know, we, it kind of freed us a little bit. And so one of the pieces we did during the pandemic was called static apnea. And it was an exploration of breath or the lack thereof in, in 2020. Mm. Um, and it was inspired by both the, the, the pandemic, uh, and George Floyd. Um, and it invited one audience member to, to enter a space with one performer and engage in a 9 minute and 2 second conversation about breath um and how long you could hold your breath and would it be long enough to save somebody would it be long enough to save yourself um and uh and so yeah so the you know that was born out of the the pandemic um and so it just to so the work that we do you know we we try and and not just fall into the the box of, of of theater
0: yeah what do, what do you mean by um the theater model is broken in in america what do you well
1: mean? in the in the us um you know funding for the for the theater is is a challenge uh audiences uh for the theater is a challenge um and it's again it's the you put all of this life and energy into something that is beautifully ephemeral. Um, but then it's, uh, it's gone. Um, yeah. and wanting to create work at this point for myself, uh, work that, that lasts longer than what a four or six week run can be in, in New York. And so, you know, the project that we're bringing to, to London, uh, debate baldwin versus buckley is a yeah. piece that we started during the the pandemic mm-hmm. um, we did three live broadcasts of it um and we have been uh that was in october of 2020 we're still working on it now and we're committed to that piece through the next presidential election in 2024 mm-hmm. and so for us that is theater it is it is live performance uh but we we sought to create that piece in a way where it was fluid and it could live and it could breathe and it could evolve over the course of of four years. And you we're not locked into the 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 box of theater. Where in New York, you know, you're you're renting a theater and that's costing you tens of thousands of dollars mm. um, to 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 do that for a couple of weeks. Mm. You know, and then the piece is gone. So trying to create pieces that are impactful nimble um and can uh can again respond to the world around us uh a bit quicker than the traditional theater model allows you
0: yeah it's almost like um it's like uh you're it would it be fair to say you're kind of chasing a an, an immersive experience so something that the audience can get a visceral feel for and actually walk away from the theater with that lasting impact so they still feel it in their breath and they still feel it in their body in a way so that they will experience
1: yeah yeah it's not immersive in the in the sense that it's a lot of immersive things that that i've seen um it has been good Mm -hmm. um but it's always it always feels a bit gimmicky um yeah and so not really interested in in that but but more of an intimate exchange of art and ideas um which for me is the definition of of theater and live performance it's a relationship between a performer and an audience and -hmm. you're seeking to have a a a dialogue that hopefully has some 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 meaning socially
0: yeah of course of course i think that's a good um segue into your work which you're gonna be doing over here in the uk um which is the baldwin and buckley debate well it's called the debate and it's coming to the Stone Nest theater on shaftesbury avenue and theater land here in town and um so yeah, so as you say, you've been, you started this project during the, during the pandemic and it's, and it's coming over here to the UK. And for anyone who doesn't know it, it's a staging of the uh, James Baldwin and William Buckley Jr. debate from, from 1965 in Cambridge, uh, debating about um, uh, sort of, well, it's two year takes two, two takes place two years after the um uh, civil rights movement of 63 and it's a debate on um sort of uh black people's uh, position in, in in america even post you know the civil rights movement that was signed by lyndon johnson um so yeah what can you tell us about your of, of well i know you have explained a bit more but what can you tell us about what audiences can expect from that production and what can they what's it going to look like etc
1: yeah we started to work on this piece in october of 2020 so mm. after the the social unrest of uh the murder of george floyd um yeah. and the contentious presidential election of of 2020 um trump versus biden um and so our objective in in doing that piece in that moment was kind of threefold one was um we wanted to gather uh and so we chose to to do the performance live three consecutive nights without an in-person audience. And we did three live broadcasts. It felt, it felt important to, to gather mm. in that moment. Uh, we wanted to participate in the, the conversation that was taking place about the, the unrest in America as a result of the murder of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to, to, comment on the political debate that was happening in america in that moment and the fact that that debate has lost all civility um and returning to this particular work uh cambridge union debate in 1965 about uh the race challenge in america um it was the perfect vehicle to uh to to have those conversations Um, And so when we, when live in-person audiences returned to New York, we started to do the piece uh, kind of in intimate settings. Um, We limit the audience to about 50 people a night, single row of audience around the performers who are in the center. Uh, That's very much a choice to, to have the audience be part of the debate. You're not allowed to sit into the theater and and become anonymous. Think about, you know, where you're going to go get a drink afterwards. Um, you know, you're, you're an active participant in the, in the debate, uh, when the debate finishes, uh, a natural conversation starts between, uh, the performers and, and the audience about the events that, that transpired. Um, and so it is verbatim, the original debate that, uh, was at Cambridge union um there's there's two versions one that was edited for for broadcast um which you can watch on on youtube um, we restored the original text there was about 7 minutes that was cut from buckley's argument uh that we we restored um and so the the piece unfolds uh, as as any cambridge union debate does so there's a uh, two undergraduate speakers uh and then two main speakers in this case Baldwin and Buckley
0: yeah and you've got a lovely set for it as well the stone nest is a it it's a very it's a location very reminiscent of Cambridge in 1965 so it's going to be a real visceral experience by the what I've only seen pictures of the set I haven't seen the show as of yet but um but it's gonna I think it's gonna be a really really authentic and visceral experience by the by the things it looks like yeah and our approach
1: something. to it is not to, we have two amazing actors uh um Bouger uh, mm-hmm. and Eric Miller uh, have been yeah. doing it uh since October of 2020 um and we're not trying to you know become Baldwin or Buckley uh impersonate them in any way their shoes are too big to to fill mm-hmm. our objective is simply to take these words from 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 this moment um and them in the mouth of contemporary artists Mm. uh, and the words still resonate today they're still the same arguments that are being made on both the left and the right and Mm. nothing has changed in the in the past 58 years yes we've made progress and tremendous progress Mm. at that in certain circles um but the foundation of uh you know is is unfortunately still there the the foundation of, of segregation and and uh Discrimination, yeah. Do you think
0: um it, it, it's only over here for a finite amount of time? Do you think you'll be able to extend it beyond April? Because it here to April the eighth, I believe, and then um, yeah, We
1: we hope to be able to go a little bit a little bit longer. Um, so we'll we'll have to see if we can, uh, you know, if we're able to capture lightning in a bottle. Um, sure, you will <laughs> with the with the work. Um, so and you know we're really excited to to bring the work to 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 london um so
0: yeah you've you've got a very good location and everything in between
1: (laughs) yeah Stone Nest has they've been great collaborators so far they're they're actually coming over to to new york in a couple of days we have a couple of performances in harlem uh at harlem stage um and so they're going to come over and and see it before we we head to london they're very very good collaborators so we're very fortunate to to have come across them
0: very good very good so guys go and go get your tickets now it's on at the stone nest and you'll be able to see this amazing production which i'm sure is going to be a really good experience of course and of course it's in um not only just for location but you're in theater land as well so you'll get a lot of attention you get a lot of people want, wanting to come and see this show yeah. and everything in between um so yeah i'm just I'm, we are slightly pushed for time but just have just a few more questions for you sure. today hey chris uh three more in fact um of course we've talked about a lot of a lot of things today about your work you know Chekhov Beckett and now the debate uh I'm curious to know um what big thing or what what what's next for you where where do you go next what big issues do you want to or what big plays do you want to tackle next after after this year
1: we have a couple of different projects in development um so we we we'll revisit to the Piedmont blues piece, Mm uh, in 2024. Uh, we'll stage that in a, in a tobacco field in the American South, kind of a a free site specific version of that return, that piece from the, to the land where we created it. Uh, and out of that, we will create a, a video installation piece. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're also working on, uh, Two or three new plays. Uh, one is uh, called "American Queen," which looks at the life of of Kate Chase. Uh, she was. Uh, it's set in the the eighteen sixty um, She was the daughter of Salmon Chase, who was the Secretary of the Treasury during the Civil War. Um, he was also the chief justice of the Supreme court and he ran for president and lost four times. Um, wow. And uh, she uh, was kind of his de facto campaign manager mm. um, the whole time. And and that piece kind of looks at the, the glass ceiling um, of American politics uh, and the fact that we've, we've yet to have a, a female leader. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've come close a couple of times but uh, we've yet to to break through that um yeah. and uh and so that piece kind of kind of looks at that um yeah. and then a couple of other things that are not uh traditional theater based so um no shortage of of things that unite and divide us at the moment unfortunately <laughs> so sure there surely be more to come i'm sure um just very quickly um as i listened
0: to your uh, a talk you gave on the is it the wayne martin panel um discussion you did back in december 2016 you talked about um the the impact that music has on your pieces like particularly in that talk about the blues and stuff yes and I, yeah. I, I really i really loved um just a couple of quotes that you said from that actually um you said uh so the blues becomes the visual envelope that holds the story and also mm-hmm. if god is music there's salvation in the blues and i have yeah. I, I I really like that. So, um, so what makes you think God is is the salvation in in blues music, in your opinion?
1: Well, I think that particular piece uh, developed in the the American South, where where the concept of of God and and religion um, is such a just woven through all aspects of of life. Um, there is hope in in the music. Um, and I'm not a religious person. I, I don't believe in in God. Um, mm-hmm. but people who do, uh, I have great respect for, um, but it's, it's hope it, it gives, it gives people hope. Yeah. Um, and that's what, that's what music does. Um, yeah. that's what the, the blues seeks to do is, is give people hope. However hard the situation might be, um, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna come back at it tomorrow hmm. so and always always actively seeking to overcome the adversity that a society has placed before you
0: always sounds like a natural healing remedy music isn't it yeah always fine <laughs> yeah that's great and just two more questions for you to, uh, for you chris um what do you think uh being a director has given you as a person and what do you think it has taken away
1: you know, I have an ongoing conversation with, uh, with a friend about accumulation Mm -hmm. and what one accumulates in life. Um, and if you were to walk a more traditional path, you probably accumulate money and, you know, a certain level of wealth and security. Um, that's, uh, that's not really what one accumulates in a, a path in the not-for-profit arts in America, um, but what you accumulate is moments, hmm. um, and what you hope for is that you create work that reaches somebody. One person is enough, um, and that's what you accumulate. I the a quick story when I was working on Invisible Man, uh, we were at uh, the University of Chicago and it was our our final preview and there was a a woman who saw me sitting in the audience with my notepad um and she said do you work for the show and i said yes i'm I'm the director and she said well i'm going to give you my notes (laughs) at intermission and at the end and i was like oh okay and i wasn't sure that the play was was working uh the way that i wanted it to um intermission comes she didn't say anything to me she just kind of walked past me um end of the play uh she comes over um and she takes my hand and she's in tears and she says thank you you told my story um wow. and i've felt invisible in my life um and this is this is this has given me hope um and it was a it was a beautiful moment and it's it's a a moment that you you accumulate uh mm-hmm. in a life in the in the arts um and so similar story just in new in new orleans to go back to to wendell when he's standing on a stoop in the lower ninth ward where there's there's nothing it's just the remnants of the foundation of a house and he says you know let us not waste time let us do something and idle let's not waste time in idle discourse let us do something Mm -hmm. um that's a moment that you accumulate uh because it was such a powerful moment that was shared with the people of of new orleans in that moment um and so certainly that is what uh, you know a life in the arts has has given me just those moments of of accumulation on a, on a personal level Fantastic. so what it hasn't given me is is money in the bank and uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: tell me about it <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> uh, it's yeah, it's all good and just finally i um they sound like I'm unforgettable experiences actually and and I think you you know forgive me if I if you've already asked this answer this question already but um just to finish uh what's been an experience or experiences you've had in your career that you're never ever gonna forget
1: well certainly both of those moments yeah would be there um you know the my career, Started because I volunteered, uh, sweeping a floor at a theater. I just wanted to be in a the theater. Um, I had I was volunteering at Richard Foreman's Anthological Theater in New York. Mm. Uh, somebody there encouraged me to to go see a show, uh, at, at a theater called the Ground Floor Theater Lab on the Lower East Side of New York. Mm. That was closing night. the The director of that show was uh, starting to take down the set there was a broom in the corner I just picked it up and started sweeping the floor to to help him Um, and that person turned out to be Alfred Pricer uh, who then invited me to teach at the Harlem School of the Arts and together we started the Classical Theater of Harlem Um, you know so just those little moments in your in the beginning of a career um, you know where it's I just wanted to be close to to the creation of, of theater and art. Um, and just, I would do anything, you know, so I just picked up a room and started sweeping and that started me down, you know, the path for better or worse. Mm. So. Amazing.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Stuff.
1: Well, C- Christopher, thank you
0: so much for today. Yeah, of course. I've, I've I really written, appreciate
1: written. Uh, you taking the time to to talk to me, Oliver. Oh so, no, no. I, I appreciate your time being here. The pleasure's all mine. So I have um, great respect for, for, what you're doing and that you've started you started this podcast during the pandemic and mm. and that it's uh it's taken root the way that it has so congratulations oh
0: you're very kind god bless you sir thank you yeah
1: it's it's become a it's become a good hobby
0: and uh one that i'm not well i say hobby but now it's part of my portfolio yeah. part of my career and uh I'm, I'm really i get to have these really great conversations with people like yourself and you know I feel like I learned something um from everyone I talk to just yeah. uh, in in bucket lows and I've certainly learned a lot from you today and uh yeah. I've really really loved this so thank you so much for your time and everything um if you just hang on I'll end the recording I'll say goodbye sure. to you one to one but um but yeah thank you again guys this has been the uncensored critic podcast and we'll be back very soon and once again Christopher thank you so much of course thank you Oliverra